I'd like to read a passage of scriptures, the last couple verses of 2 Corinthians 12 and the first couple verses of 2 Corinthians 13. Let me read that passage to you. Again, think ye that, I, that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wrath, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. And lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Verse 1, This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you, as if I were present the second time, and being absent now, I write to them which therefore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, I will not spare. We've decided to tackle the book of 2 Corinthians. I've shared with you that this book, this epistle, is unlike anything Paul has written before. And uh, in reading the first 12 chapters, we find out that Paul is basically what I would call on the defense. And it really puzzled me. It's unlike anything he'd wrote, written before. And then all of a sudden, I've been reading this chapter over and over again, and finally I see in the end of 12, in the beginning of 13, which is the very end of the book, I see there's the old Paul. And I'm thinking, Paul, why did you write this letter so differently? It almost looked like he spent 11 and a half chapters justifying himself. And I'm thinking, Paul, you don't need to justify your apostleship. You wrote most of the New Testament. You planted more churches. You, you had more sons in the ministry. Why are you justifying yourself for 11 and a half chapters? And then it hit me why he was doing it. See, in my mind, he wrote 1 Corinthians, which was a very hard letter. And in that letter, he wrote them and he basically said, y'all are just an immature church. And then he wrote 2 Corinthians, and what we did in the very first lesson last week, we read chapter 7. Now, I know you're probably thinking, Brother Dolph, you're doing a book study. The first chapter you do is 7, the second chapter you do is the last one. That's the craziest way to do a book study, and maybe it is. But this epistle is written unlike any other And we've got to understand what Paul's doing and why he's doing it. And this is my conclusion. That the church, by and large, as a whole, repented. When he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 11, and he told all those immature things they were doing, basically the church repented, and then we found that in chapter 7. And then he starts off in this book, and we're going to read these passages in a second. He's going to say, you know, I really didn't want to have to come to you and do all that bad stuff face to face. That's why I'm writing you. And he says, I don't want to do it. 
But if I come and you haven't fixed it, I will do it. Hence the title of this lesson. I don't want to do it, but I will. But he's going to spend 11 and a half chapters justifying his ministry and explaining what a minister of God is and what a minister of God should be and what he should do. And I believe that by and large the church had repented, but there was a remnant that was fighting it. There was a remnant in the church. And I don't know why that remnant was fighting Paul. Maybe, maybe you know, I, I, I try to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was very sincere. And, you know, if I get up here and I tell you something and I'm stepping on your toes, at least you have to go to the Bible and say, is it what he's telling me the truth or not? Back then, they didn't even have that, right? All they had was Paul's writing. And maybe it was sincere and says, I don't know what the truth is. Maybe it wasn't so sincere. Maybe it was just pride thinking, who's this little short guy with a bad haircut telling us what to do? Right? He was short. He had a funny haircut. And I'm guessing he was pretty scarred up. He wasn't a good-looking guy. He got stoned. Right? I, I got to tell you a story about that one time. This is chasing a rabbit. I'm sorry. But I was speaking at the rescue mission several years ago. And I was trying to share with the guys there. I was speaking with the guys. I said, it can always be worse. And, and I went to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I says, how many people of you have ever been on a ship, and the ship busted up, and you got thrown in the deep, and were there for 24 hours? No one raised their hand. And I says, how many of you got attacked by wild animals, and no one raised their hand? And I said, how many of you gotten stoned? And the whole back row raised their hand. And I'm looking at them, I'm so naive, I'm looking for scars on their face. Now, what are you talking? And the good brethren that came with me in the front war were laugh, scorning me to shame with their laughter. And I go, ah, oh, you big dummy. I, you know, it, just, it was, okay, but, but you got it. But, but, but Paul really was literally stoned, right? <laughs> I got so many embarrassing stories I can tell you. Just, but anyway, I, was, I just, I fell into that hook, line, and sinker, and my my, the good brethren were in the front row scorning me a laughter, and that's when I figured it out. But, but, but he, he was all marked up. He was, he was whipped. He was beaten. He'd been stoned. He, 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 he couldn't have been a good-looking guy. Maybe that's why they dismissed him. But after reading this epistle, you know what I think it really was? I think it was just sheer rebellion. I think that Paul was telling them the truth. And they didn't want to obey the truth, so the best thing they could do was try to discredit him. And by discrediting him, it justified them not obeying the truth. So he spent 11 and a half chapters justifying himself. And I said, Paul, why did you do that? You know what he was trying to do? He was trying to save a remnant to save the whole church. I think that was his goal. By, a remnant can cause a lot of trouble in a small church. A remnant can cause a lot of trouble in a big church. Amen? So by delivering and converting this small remnant, I think he was trying to save the whole church, and he spent a lot of and a half chapters, but actually at the very end, he says, I don't want to have to come there and be rough on you. It's not fun. I don't like it. But I'll do it if I have to. 
And that's what this. So with that background, <laughs> I know for Second <laughs> Corinthians part one was chapter seven. Second Corinthians part two will be twelve and thirteen. And then we'll start doing that, okay? But I want to look at Paul justifying himself, but you've got to understand why he's justifying himself. So let me, let, me, let me go here, and I'm going to show you some of this stuff, okay? So this is what we did last week, just by way of review. This is 2 Corinthians 7, and I want to read 8 through 10. He says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, see, that's 1 Corinthians I do not repent, though I did repent. And it's not double talk. He's just saying, you know, I wrote it, I was really sorry. But in the long run, it was the best thing for you. For I perceive that the same epistle that, epistle that made you sorry, though it were but for a season, now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that sorrow, you sorrow to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So I'm glad I wrote that letter to you. But you know what? The whole church hadn't converted. The majority of the church did, but the whole church didn't. So let me keep on going here. And I want to go to chapter 12, 19, and 20. We just read some of this. We speak before Christ. God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edification. So whether I'm talking comforting words or whether I'm talking exhorting words, I'm doing it because I'm trying to build you up. And sometimes before you can build up, you've got to tear down some things that are not good, right? You've got to get rid of some faulty bricks and replace the foundation before you can start building on top. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would. Well, wait a second. Chapter 7 just said they had repented, and chapter 12 says they hadn't. And again, it's my conclusion that the majority of the church had repented, but there was still a remnant that hadn't. Okay? Uh, let's see here. For I fear that when I come, that I shall be found unto you such as you would not, lest there be debates and envying. And you know what? That's all the stuff we found in chapters 1 through 11, right? Those were the, the immature things they were doing in 1 through 11 in the 1 Corinthians. There's still some of that there. Yeah, let's keep on going. Okay, I want to go back to chapter 2. Now I'm still in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And he says, you know, I, when I come to you, I really don't want to come and have to be rough with you. Just think about it. You're a father, and you got a child. And, and I don't know, children, Brother Hope and Emma and Josiah, Bethany, you probably think, boy, mom and dad are just having fun yelling at me. Okay? Believe me, it, it is misery. We can't stand doing it. But the thing, the reason why we do it is because we love you. Because if we didn't love you, we would go easy on ourselves and just let it go and let you do what you want to do. So, there we are. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. See, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he says, I don't want to come to you and have to be the hard guy. I'm going to write this letter and hope it takes care of things. But way back in chapter 12 and 13, what did we just read? He says, but if you don't change, I'll come and be the hard guy. Got it? I will. You're not loving 
students. You're not loving your children. You're not loving your employees where you just let things go just to keep peace. Short term, you know what you're doing? You're looking for peace for yourself. But long term, you're looking for a train wreck down the road. Okay? Who is this then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made me made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice. You know, when I come to you and I preach to you, Paul's saying, he says, you know, coming and preaching to you and seeing you rejoice in the Lord and get excited about what Christ did for you and dying on the cross and seeing you guys do that, it just makes me so happy. I don't like coming and preaching the hard duty. It's not fun. When I came, I should have sorrow from them whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. The motive for the hard language was not domination. It wasn't to keep you down. The reason why he did it was out of love. He didn't want to. He didn't want to come in love, and he didn't even want to write those hard words. But he had to. So we go back to chapter 13, which we just read. This is the third time I'm coming to you in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and I foretell you as if I were present the second time. And I being absent now I write unto them hitheretofore have sinned. This is the remnant that hadn't converted. And to all other that if I come again I will not spare. I don't want to, but I will. Now, We're going to conclude this message in, less, in chapter 13, 5 through 8. But I'm going to tell you where I'm going. Basically, what Paul's going to do, he's going to say, and he's going to spend 11 and a half chapters justifying himself, explaining what a pastor is, what God expects of a pastor. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to say, truth is truth, whether it's measured against me or it's measured against you. It's still truth. And you know what he says in chapter 13, verse 7? He says, even if I don't measure up, you're still going to be measured against truth. My actions have no bearing on whether what God's going to hold you accountable. So, So that was their whole excuse. I think the remnant was not obeying Paul because they were looking at him thinking he's an inferior disciple. Maybe, maybe he's the guy that never got to be with Jesus. You know, like Matthew and John and James and Peter and Andrew. They got to be, he's just a second rate apostle so we don't need to pay attention to him. And he's going to do a, spend a lot of time defending himself. Okay. All right, so let's go. That's my introduction. Oh, there's one more thing in verse 13. This is, this is what makes me think this. No, notice what it says at the end of verse 3. He says, Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. In other words, there was a remnant in this church that were saying, Paul, 
we don't believe you're 100% pure apostle. And because we don't believe you're 100% pure, we're not going to do what you say. I don't care if it's truth or not. We're not going to do what you say. So, as a father, as a teacher in a classroom, as a pastor, I don't ever want to become a stumbling block to those that I'm trying to teach or parent or pastor. I never want to be that. But you know what? There's only one person that ever fit that bill and did it perfectly all the way through, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. I will disappoint you. If you're looking to get married, to be happy, your spouse will disappoint you. There's only one that will not, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's what we have to do. So since you speak of a proof of Christ speaking in many, he just spent all these chapters justifying himself. So I'm going to look at this. We're going to spend some time the rest of the day looking at all the things that he said he did. Okay? Now, people get funny ideas. I'll, I'll share just a couple things. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to be as vague as possible, and I'm going to go to other ministers that I've talked to over the years, and I won't name names or churches or anything like that. But I had a, a pastor friend that was be given a hard time by his congregation. And what happened was, is the church was getting after him because he wasn't visiting the elderly like the church thought he should. Okay? And they came up with the idea, okay, in order to give you more time to visit the elderly, we'll start doing some of your Wednesday night lessons. You're laughing, right? I'm thinking, what? That's exactly the opposite, the Bible pattern. The Bible pattern is it created the office of deacon in Acts chapter 6, where the deacons visited the elders so the pastor could spend time studying the word and preaching the word. And here was a church that was completely reversing the roles. Churches can get mixed up. Churches can get funny ideas. Okay, here's another one. I had another pastor friend that the church wanted to have him start doing some classes for the young people. And the pastor said, no. I will have classes for the parents to teach them how to teach their children. That's the Bible pattern. Somehow the church got all mixed up in the way God's pattern is, and they put forth their crazy ideas, and we're going completely contrary to the Bible pattern. Well, what Paul's going to do is he's going to put forth some ideas, and these ideas are God's design for a minister. And this Corinthian church got some crazy ideas, and we're getting things all backwards, and Paul's saying, I'm doing what God charged me to do. Okay? All right. So this, these are just some of the titles that are found, or, or, or the metaphors, that are found in 1 Corinthians. In, in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, a pastor is likened to a nutritionist. 
right? And that makes me think of the passage in Hebrews chapter five. He says, you know what? Y'all are still drinking, you're still drinking milk. You ought to be drink, eating meat by now. You know, when, when we think of shepherds, what's one of the jobs of shepherds? To rotate the fields, right? You rotate the pastor. If they eat too long in the same field, they'll eat in the ones that are defiled. They'll get sick and they'll die. A pastor's supposed to be shuffling them around. Yeah. I got to make sure. I got to try to mix it up. We're doing topical studies. We're doing book studies. I got to rotate the fields. I know in every congregation, there's people that love book studies and there's people that love topical studies. So I do a 50-50 so I can equally offend everybody. No, I do it 50-50 because I obey God. You got it? But that's what people think, right? So I get my marching orders from God. You think, why am I doing this? I'm not here justifying myself. Y'all know I'm getting up in my 60s. There's going to time where you need to replace me. I want you to be thinking for not your ideas, not the world's ideas, not church's ideas, not denomination ideas. I want you to know what God's idea for what a minister should be. And when candidates come in and you start asking them, what do you do? You make sure you hold them to the standard of not your preferences, you hold them up to the standard of God. And that's exactly what Paul's doing with this church. There is a remnant within this church that doesn't like Paul. And they are fighting and they're doing all the things contrary to God's word because they're using Paul as an excuse to discredit him and saying, I don't have to do it. Okay? This, church, this, this, this message got way heavier than I intended it to do. But, but, but I spent a lot of time trying to, I just couldn't figure out this book. And without this, it doesn't make any sense. In, in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 8, he's likened to a garden. Gardener in, in, in 310, he's likened to a mason, you know, building the foundation of a building. In 39, he's likened to a laborer. In chapter 5, he's likened, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, he's likened to a steward, a trumpeter, a father, and a mentor. In chapter 9, he's likened to a shepherd, an ox, a farmer, and a priest. He's supposed to be doing all those things. You think, wow, that's just 1 Corinthians. Let's find out what he says in 2 Corinthians. Okay? One of the things that I want to try to do is give you the great big outline of the book. In basically chapters 3 through 6, what he's doing is he's describing the characteristics of himself and Timothy. Timothy's his son in the ministry, and they're doing all this preaching together. So when you read chapters 3 through 6, he says, listen, this is everything we've done to you. This is everything we've done for you. This is everything we intend to do for you. And he's saying, this is it. So this is the ministry, and this is is what I want you to measure. Don't measure whether I'm tall or not. Don't measure whether I got a funny-looking haircut or not. Don't measure me if I'm from the north and not the south. Don't measure me if I've got these injury marks from being stoned. Measure me based on my actions, and these are the actions that we've done to you, and we're a witness, and you're a witness that everything we're saying is true. Okay? So we go to chapter 7. That's what we read last week. That's talking about the repentance. We go 8 through 9. It's talking about a collection for the Jerusalem saints via an independent third party. You guys joked when Brother Brian made his statement, and I said, I'm glad I don't need to mess with it. That's exactly what Paul did. It was all done by 
a couple people and he was not involved in it. He wasn't even in the city when all the money was collected and being sent. He had no part of it. He just says you need to help them out. Okay? And then you get 10 through 13. And this is a contrast of Paul's ministry with ministers who were false apostles. So he's going to contrast him versus false apostles. And he says, that's the standard I want you to measure me by. Okay? All right. So, with that being said, Paul was a servant. Here's a few of the things here. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ because I uh, applied for the job and the people in Jerusalem accepted me. You guys are giggling, right? That's not how he became apostle. He got picked. He was on that road. He was having fun persecuting Christians. And Jesus came to him and he says, you're my guy. And the Jerusalem people, saints said, what? That guy? You're making him an apostle? I don't trust that guy as far as I can throw him. And God says, yeah, he's my guy. He's the guy. He's the one I want. It was God's will. He trusted, in one nine. it says he trusted God. He never trusted himself. In other words, he was going by God's direction, not his thoughts or inclinations. He preached Christ's gospel. He never preached his own thoughts or inclinations. It's, he's, he, did, he said that twice, and again in chapter 4 and verse 5. 5, 9, he worked to be accepted of God, whether the Corinthians were there or not. When I did some volunteer work in the um, Civil Air Patrol, and I was talking um, mor- morality and, uh, uh, to, to the cadets. We had a definition of integrity. Integrity was doing the right thing, whether people were present or not, whether people were watching or not. Well, that's what he was saying. He says, I was obeying God whether you saw me or not. Okay? 10.9, his written words could be terrifying, weighty, and powerful, but they were always true. And then 12.19, he always spoke as if he were speaking before God and Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's the way I need to preach. I know you're here, but ultimately, I got to think Christ is sitting in the back of the room, and I got to make sure that all my words are in accordance with His will. And He's the one I'm really preaching. It's His audience that I want to judge from. Okay? I hope you can find someone like that when my time is gone, right? You need to be a counselor. In chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, Paul comforted saints which were in any trouble. In 1 6, he delivered saints whether they were experiencing affliction or comfort. In 5 11, he says, he, Knowing the terror of God, he persuaded men, don't do those dumb things. Okay? I just got that look. Whenever I say dumb or stupid, I always get a turned head from Sister Bethany. Okay, knuckle headed things. How about that? Knuckle headed things. Don't do those knuckle-headed things. You're going to pay for it. 8.8, eight. He, he encouraged saints to prove their love, not always in commandment form. Okay, and, and the next verse also says the same thing, 8.10. It says he advised Corinthians. You know, not everything Paul did was a commandment. Sometimes he gave suggestions, sometimes he gave advice. Right? Well, who do you trust? Your own feelings? Or Paul, who was ordained by God, chosen by God, taught by God, 
started churches, wrote scripture, and ordained ministers. And he gives you some advice? I think you probably should take it, huh? Okay. In 11.6, he manifested all things to saints, sometimes rudely, but always in knowledge. That was Paul. Sometimes he spoke roughly, but it was always true. Okay? So, think about it. Let's go back to this church in Corinth. They have all these fussings going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They're fussing and fighting at one another. They're going to each other to, to law. They're, they're, they're arguing about different things, right? And he writes them and he, and, and he lines them out. That's what 1 Corinthians is. It's, he just lines them out. And the majority of the church do it, but there's this remnant that's hanging on and I'm not going to do it. Who's he to tell me what I'm doing? I've never done it that way before. But that's the word of God. And here he is, and he's saying, listen, you can't discount the advice I'm giving you based on my character. Okay? I wish I could say that. My character isn't like Paul's. All I can say is, you can't discount my advice because it disagrees with the word of God. Okay? And then we go to 10:16. He preached the gospel in many regions, not boasting of other men's things. He preached God, he preached God's word, and he didn't preach the words of men. Praise the Lord. Okay? He was an example. Yeah, that's an old-fashioned word for example. In 1:12, it says his conversation was in simplicity, simplicity and sincerity. I had a conversation with my daughter just the other day. about this subject. I was asked to go back to the school I taught at for many years. The teachers were having an orientation. They were having teaching things before the school started this past school year. And they asked me to do a couple devotions. And what I did is the first lesson I gave them, the first devotion I did, I told them that if you get up and do a devotion or you do a chapel service, and the only one that comes up to you after the chapel service is another teacher and pats you on the back, my guess is you missed your audience. Amen? Who are you there for? To get the pat on the back from the other preachers? Or are you there to get through to some kids that are struggling with their faith? That's your audience. And if you've got to use simple terms, get rid of the five and six syllable words. Amen? When I'm talking to a babe in Christ, I do not use propitiation, justification, sanctification, and reconciliation. I don't use those words. You know what I use? Washed, bought, put away, removed. The other words are beautiful, but not for a babe in Christ. Know your audience. And that's exactly what Jesus did. I'm sorry, that's exactly what Paul did. But you know what? That's exactly what Jesus did also. I challenge you to go and hit the red letter words of your Bible. Count the five syllable words. You're not going to find a whole lot. You know what you're going to find? Wide and straight. Good fruit, bad fruit. Sheep, wolf. I mean, it's not rocket science, guys. 
Okay? And Paul's saying, I was simple, I was plain, it was sincere, it was so you can understanding, there was no misunderstanding it. Okay? 6.3, he gave no offense so the ministry was not blamed. 7.2, he never wronged, corrupted, or defrauded any man. This is Paul and Timothy. 8.21, he provided for things honestly in the sight of God and man. 11.9, in all things he kept himself from burning the church and he continued to do so. 13.6, Paul, he and the ministers that accompanied him, they were never reprobate. So not only did he preach the God's word with his mouth, not only did he write God's word with pen and paper, he marched it with his shoe leather too. So here's this Corinthian church. They've got this remnant. I don't like Paul. And Paul's going through this laundry list and says, what do you have against me except my bad haircut? Has he got nothing? I can't do that. But Paul could. That's why I got to rely heavily on the word. And then the other hats. Look at some of the other hats that Paul wore. In 123, I love this passage. It says, he was a helper of their, joy, of their joy, and he was not lording over their faith. He says, he says, I'm not controlling you. He says, yeah, I wrote you a hard letter, but I'm not having dominion over your faith. I'm trying to be a helper of your joy. In 520, he calls himself an ambassador for Christ who reconciled them to God. And he says, you know what? You need to be reconciled to God. Right? And we know that's not eternal. Amen? God reconciled, I'm sorry, Jesus reconciled us to God eternally, but you need to get right with God. Okay? 11.2, he was a guardian, desiring to present Corinth as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ, her husband. In 11.28, he was a church planner. The churches would be cared for, was a daily burden to him. In 1215, he was, a faithfully, he was a faithful friend. He gladly spent himself, and he would spend himself as he ministered to the Corinthians. I'll stay up all night if it takes it. Okay? 1310, he was a cheerleader with an eye towards edification, never destruction. Okay? Now again, some people think destruction, that means they always say something happy. No. Sometimes you need to tear off some bad work. Amen? Yeah. Let me read 2 Corinthians 13. Let me read 5 through 8. Okay? We just, when I introduced and I went into 1 Corinthians, we just read 1 through 4. Now I want to read 5 through 8. He's talking to these um, Corinthians, and he says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. You want to prove me? No, you prove yourselves. Know ye not your own selves that how Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. There it is, verse 7. What he's saying, he says, truth is truth no matter what, whether it's being measured against me or whether it's being measured against you. 
And even if I'm found in error, even if I am a reprobate, that doesn't get you off the hook for obeying God. Right? Well, how many times have you heard, why aren't you go to church? Well, I was a member of church once and I got burned. That doesn't get you off the hook for not obeying God because the church did something wrong. Churches will do things wrong. We always make the joke. If you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll wreck it. Amen? For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Paul's saying truth is truth no matter what. It's measured against me, measured against you. It's still the truth. And you can't justify it away. I've done my best to teach it and teach only it. I've done my best to obey it. I've done my best to promote it. I've done my best to counsel it, to advise in those principles. And that's what I'm found guilty of. So be it. Okay, let me go to 2 Corinthians 3. We're going back to the beginning of the book now. Let's read this. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? No. You know what the best, and this is what it says here. I'm going to do some paraphrasing. You know what the best epistle for a minister is? It's the actions of the congregation. You know what the best epistle? For a preacher is? It's not what people write about him. It's his walk in the community. It's his reputation. It's the pattern he set. It's the pattern other people fall. That's your epistle. I don't care about what's written with pen and ink. And basically what he's asking these Corinthians to do is look at my shoe leather. Forget, forget the letters after my name. Forget the qualifications. Forget, forget the schools I went to. What has my shoe leather said about who I am? Okay? You know, the funny thing was, he was the most educated of all the apostles. Wasn't he? He had the most qualifications of all the apostles. Amen? Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendations to you or letters of commendations from you? Ye are our epistles, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ ministered unto by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust we have through Christ to Godward. I'm trusting in the shoe leather, not in the other. Amen? Paul said, now judge me. Now judge me. Okay? So as we go forward in time and it's time to do some reflecting. It's time to do some um, filling positions. This is the advice we need to follow. So I pray that the Lord will bless us in doing so. I pray that we'll be the church like 
the one in Philippi, not the one in Corinth. Amen? Okay, let's call that a day and we'll sing a song.